Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. We're your hosts, Faison Arshad. And I'm Chris Fuligar. Happy Tuesday of EMS week, folks. This is Faison Arshad and Chris Fuligar. We are kicking off today's episode on delayed sequence intubation. Yes, that's a riff on our typical mnemonic RSI, or rapid sequence intubation. And this lecture comes to you from EMS Today 2017 from Salt Lake City by Dr. Jeff Jarvis, who's the EMS Medical Director in Williamson County, Texas. Yes, Faison, I think this lecture brings up some very important points and concepts that may be a little different than what some people are used to. I think traditionally in pre-hospital care, we have placed a tremendous importance upon a definitive airway or that cuff tube in a trachea. But I think the importance of this and what Dr. Jarvis tries to convey is that separate from this, we need to take a step back and look at the overall medical decision-making that goes into patient care and not just look at endotracheal tube intubation or rapid sequence intubation in a vacuum. It's part of the resuscitation process, and it's part of how we manage the overall care of the critical patient. So taking a moment to pause and maximize preoxygenation and denitrogenation to make sure that we resuscitate the patient to the best level possible is one of the paradigm shifts that we are looking at and how that fits into the overall care of the critical patient. I could not have said it better myself, Chris. DSI is something that is up and coming. It's a newer concept. And of course, it involves ketamine, one of our favorite drugs in the pre-hospital armamentarium. And intubation as a skill at the ALS level remains controversial in the United States in 2017. There are certain states which do not have RSI and DSI may be something that is incorporated into the ALS scope of practice to help optimize the patient's physiology prior to actually giving a dose of paralytics and placing the tube. So uh, stand by, Dr. Jeff Jarvis really digs into the details of DSI, how he incorporated into his service some of his data results and his protocol and algorithm. And of course he shares pertinent cases where the patient likely would have decompensated had they not optimized the pre-oxygenation and denitrogenation. Thank you all for coming. My name is Jeff Jarvis. I am a paramedic and a physician. I'm an EMS physician and an emergency medicine physician. Um, I'm an odd guy. I went to paramedic school. I graduated from paramedic school in 1988 and worked as a paramedic for 11 years and decided what I really wanted to do was be an EMS medical director. Um, so I kind of looked up the description and said, well, what is the medical school? Eh, it's only seven years. So I went to medical school so that I could actually get paid what I felt like I was worth as a paramedic. Um, so I'm really speaking to you as a paramedic who happened to have gotten lucky and uh, made it into a, a position where I can do something. Um, I'm actually the medical director at the system that I worked as a paramedic, uh, which is uh, it's an awesome thing for me. Well, I want to talk to you all about a way of going about doing intubation. And what I want to do, the reason I want to talk to you, the reason I'm so passionate about this topic is because I think if we're going to intubate, we need to do it right. And doing it right is not easy. Doing it right can be a little bit of a pain in the butt. But we're not doing, we're not intubating people for ourselves. We're intubating people for our patients. 
And we need to be really clear why we got into this business. The patients aren't there for us, we're there for them. I was doing one of these delayed sequence intubations in my emergency department last Saturday. And the RT looked at me like I was smoking crack. And I may have been. But he said, this is just such a pain in the butt. Why don't you just get them intubated? I said, look, I understand that this takes a little bit longer. I understand that I'm putting you out a little bit. I understand we're having to do something different than the way we've always done it before. But this isn't about us. It's about this guy on the stretcher right now who can't breathe very well. So how about we get past that and focus on what we can do to make this patient better? So I want to, uh, that's what I want to talk to you about, is how we can make our intubation safer. So I want you to uh, let you know that uh, basically this is not my idea. There are a lot of original ideas out there. Um, this is not mine. This concept of delayed sequence intubation uh, has been talked about by Scott Weingart. But I want to be clear, it's not his idea either. It's his phrase. It's not his idea. What we're actually talking about here is actually listed in the paramedic book we all learned with. What we're talking about here is doing something that we really should have been doing all along, which is adequately pre-oxygenating our patients. Now, there are a small subset of patients that can't be adequately oxygenated by normal means. And then this concept really does come into play. The problem, though, is we just don't address adequate pre-oxygenation in any patients. Well, they're hypoxic, so the only fix for the hypoxia is plastic. We've got to get them intubated because that's the only way we can fix the hypoxia, right? I mean, if you have a patient with an oxygen saturation of 60, they clearly need to be intubated because that's the only way you can get their SATs up. Oops. It turns out that's not right, and if you actually go back to what we were taught to begin with, actually taught us about this thing with a mask and a bag and like oxygen. So it turns out we can use those things. And if we use them correctly and adequately and do it in the right time, we can intubate in a safe fashion. Because I still think there are reasons that we need to intubate. But we just need to do it in a way that doesn't kill people. So um, uh, Jason Cook there has, I blatantly stole his acronym for a way to make the things to do to fix the hypoxia before you intubate memorable, and I'm going to share that with you. And then um, Scott Weingart at MCRIT has some fascinating stuff. Um, he's, a, he's a great teacher and has some good information up there. All right, so Einstein has a way of making some things um, pretty clear. I want to let you know that there's a reason I got really interested in this, and that's because I made mistakes. So specifically, I want to tell you about a mistake. So <clears throat> I review all of our intubations. And as I'm looking at one of our intubations, I, I just said, something's not right here. And I talked to the crew. And we went through the story. And I want to share that story with you. This is a 64-year-old woman with a history of COPD. And she was getting more short of breath. And she was getting more short of breath. And she was getting more short of breath. And she did what a lot of people with COPD COPD do, and that's ignore the problem. And it got worse, and it got worse, and she ignored it some more and ignore. And by the time we got there, she was, she could speak in maybe a word sentence. Um, her oxygen sats were very low. She was around, well, I shouldn't say very low, maybe mid-80s. But she was clearly in respiratory distress. And as a matter of fact, she was starting to get confused. Um, she was having signs of hypercapnic encephalopathy. Her CO2 was rising because she couldn't um, exhale that CO2. 
Well, she was also hypoxic and she was agitated. And I think we've all seen that patient who is agitated because of the hypoxia and they're confused because of the entitled CO2. So we figured we would do something about that and we tried to put her on BiPAP. She was not tolerating the BiPAP at all. As a matter of fact, she was getting worse. Her SATs were in the now low 80s and our crew said, well, we just need to go ahead and intubate her. We're gonna RSI her. And at the time, our process for RSI was we push ketamine, we push rocuronium, they go down, we take out our handy-dandy video laryngoscope, and we intubate them. It's easy, right? Well, let me tell you what happened in this process, and then I'm going to show you a graph of what happened. We gave her the ketamine, we gave her the rocuronium, she went down, and we go in, and oh my God, it's a difficult airway. By whatever the definition of difficult airway is, it doesn't matter. They were having problems getting that tube in the right place. Now, when I went back after the fact and looked at our second-by-second -second data that our monitor was giving us, and we use the Philips MRX, but the Zoll physio monitors do exactly the same thing. You can look at captures data on a second-by-second -second basis for each one of the parameters that you're monitoring. And primarily the things we're looking for here is entitled CO2, respiratory rate, heart rate, and uh, oxygen set. Well, they weren't paying attention to that. And as I'm looking at it, what I see is that this is a prolonged attempt. This attempt took about three minutes. And, and that's okay with me because I don't really care how long the attempt lasts as long as physiologically they're doing okay. But this patient was not doing okay and we didn't recognize it. Her stats started around 84 and dropped to 78 and 76 and 74 and 70 and 60 and 50 and 40 like that. Her heart rate started off at around 110. Any guesses where it ended up? Zero. Yeah. So she went into cardiac arrest. She was in cardiac arrest a while, about a minute or so before we realized it. When we realized it, we aborted the attempt, we bagged her, we started CPR, we gave her epi, because of course epi fixes everything. We got pulses back and we said, okay, well no harm, no foul. Another person came in intubated. That is called an iatrogenic cardiac arrest. And iatrogenic means we caused it. We can't blame this on anybody else. Here are the SATs. Let me show you what this looks like. So um, when you're looking here, you can see we gave ketamine. Okay, well, that doesn't work at all. Um, we have two blood pressures in here and then a pulse oximeter. And the pulse oximeter is our, uh, the second line up and then the heart rate is the green one on top. You can see where the heart rate starts dropping. And the reason you don't see it at zero is you notice how those little dots get further and further apart? That's because there wasn't data, it wasn't able to capture data because there's no perfusion there. Same thing with the oxygen saturations. Um, the oxygen saturation is that second line down and it dropped um, and the scale is not on here, but the lowest that we actually saw it at was around 41. Keep in mind the oxygen saturation on this floor is 21. 40 is pretty damn bad. We know from the literature that once your SATs get below 70, your odds of hemodynamic compromise go way, way, way up. So her respiratory rate and her entitled CO2 dropped to zero around, we would expect that. We, and I'm sorry, we're using sucks at the time. So this patient, we actually got pulses back and she's still alive right now if you can call it that. So she had permanent brain damage. 
this is what we call a sentinel event. So we looked at that, we brought the crew in, and I said, I want you to understand what happened here. We did this to her. And I don't mean you did this, I mean we did this. This was our system. These, by the way, were outstanding medics. I would let them take care of me anytime. This was not a, a function of a bad medic. Because if, you, if you're thinking this can't happen to you because you're a good medic, you're wrong. It can. And if you've been doing it long enough, it probably has. I'm pretty sure it's happened to me. I know I have had people code on me around the time I'm intubating, and I just thought, well, they're really sick. Well, yeah, they are really sick because, you know, as a general rule, unlike our anesthesia colleagues, we don't intubate well people. But they weren't dead. And when that time around intubation is a very, very risky time for patients, it's even riskier when we don't do this right. So the reason I'm, and I went back, by the way, and I looked at our RSI data. We had three of these. Two of them we had missed. We didn't understand. So we said we have to do something different, and we completely changed our process, and I'm going to share with you why we did it and what we learned. But the reason that I am so passionate about it is because I know this is happening in systems in other places, and I want to let you all know this because I don't want this to happen again for any of your patients, and I don't want you to have to worry about what you've done to other patients. So here's the whole concept of this. Um, the three points that I want you to understand, peri-intubation hypoxia, which is what we're talking about here, is very common. It's also very harmful. If you want to avoid peri-intubation hypoxia, this is not rocket science. This is really easy. Stop intubating hypoxic patients. Then you don't have peri-intubation hypoxia. Okay, well then we just don't intubate anybody. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is fix the problem first. That is well within our capabilities, and that's what we should be doing. So let's fix the problem first, stop intubating hypoxic patients, and then we're going to use this DSI toolbox to help you fix the problem. All right, so I want to share some data with you here. Um, this is a study. Now, one of the things we know is that hypoxia and, as it turns out, hypotension is really bad in patients with traumatic brain injuries. It also turns out that traumatic brain injuries are one of the main reasons that we intubate people in the field. So these were some studies that were done in San Diego. Uh, this particular one looked at 54 patients who got RSI in the field, and they noticed 57% of them, over half of them, had a hypoxic episode. And their definition of hypoxia, by the way, was not that they were hypoxic. It was that either they were not hypoxic to begin with and then became hypoxic, or if they were hypoxic, they had a drop of more than 20%. Does that make sense? Over half had this. So this is not an uncommon problem. 81% of the people that desaturated were not hypoxic to begin with. We made them hypoxic in the process of trying to fix them. The plastic, and this, I, please help me, I want you to understand this and I want you to tell everybody else this. That piece of plastic is not the cure for hypoxia. It's not. That's not why we're intubating people. We're intubating people so that we can oxygenate them and we can ventilate them without our hands attached to the patient. We can't have a physical face mask with someone standing there for days. It's just not going to work. So we need to put the, the tube in at some point, but it's not the fix to hypoxia. 81% of these patients, we were making them hypoxic. But they're all easy intubations. Hypoxia only happens in difficult intubations. 
this study went back and they actually looked and they said, well, of those patients who got hypoxic, how many of them were difficult airways? Nah, those are easy. 81% of the medics said no problem whatsoever, easy intubation, no problems, no complications, easy peasy. 9% of them had bradycardia, hemodynamically significant bradycardia. These weren't people bradycardic to begin with. These were patients we were making bradycardic. So let me tell you a little something about um, the RSI process. When I took over my system, we had a process that I wasn't a big fan of. Um, that process I thought was overly complicated um, and under-medicated would give tincture of Versed, like two milligrams of Versed. If I'm gonna paralyze you, do you wanna know about it? Do you think two milligrams of Versed? Most of y'all, if y'all are anything like me, had easily more than two milligram equivalents of benzodiazepines last night. I suspect that your GABA receptors were thoroughly blocked last night. Uh, and that's how benzos work just like alcohol. Two milligrams of Versed, y'all passed that by like five o'clock. Um, so we were paralyzing awake people, and there's a word for that, and that's called torture. We shouldn't do that. But then we would give them atropine. You know why we'd give them atropine? Well, because the paralytic causes bradycardia. No. No, it's the hypoxia that's causing the bradycardia. Atropine doesn't fix that. The hypoxia, fixing the hypoxia does. So 9% of these patients had bradycardia, and this is similar to what we're seeing in our data. So another study, because this clearly only happens in the field, right? It's just bad paramedics. ER docs, now they're good at this. Never gonna happen in the emergency department. Well, since I wear both hats, oh my God. So this is a study of 166 patients in the emergency department. 35, 36% of them had desaturations. Controlled environment, right? Not upside down in ditch. Well lit, lots of help. 36% had hypoxia. This is a very well controlled study. I would suspect that this number is low. Um, I think it's probably a lot higher than that. This just, I love this. When you are intubating, we like to think we are calm, we're cool, we're collected, we're intubating with our cerebral cortex. You're not. You're intubating with your cortex, all right, it's just your adrenal cortex. You are dumping so many catecholamines, your heart rate goes up, you get tunnel vision. It's not because you're a bad paramedic, it's not because you're a bad ER doc, it's because you're human. This is a physiologic response to stress. The higher your heart rate gets, up to a certain point, it's adaptive. Once you get above that, our worldview starts closing in. We don't pay attention to monitors anymore. So we have to have somebody pay attention for us. This was an awesome, I love this study, because my ER partners tell me, well, that just happens in the field. So you know the little monitors they have? In my hospital, they're called Draegers, the little things that sit there and beep that people ignore. Well, they also are recording second-by-second -second data. Nobody in the hospital knows it. Well, this gentleman knows it, and he went in and took a look and said, I'm gonna do a survey, and every time we do an intubation, I'm gonna ask the intubating physician to fill out a survey and say, how did you have desaturations, and how long did it take you to intubate? And then they would confirm that. This is one of these rooms that had a video camera in there, and they had some nurses doing some abstraction. Direct visualization of how long it took. And they're looking at the second-by-second -second data, and would you believe that they were off? they underestimated both how long it took them and the percent of desaturations. So they said, well, it's only about 13% of desaturations. No, actually about 23%. They said it took me maybe 20 seconds. 
Now it took about twice that. So we are not, when we're intubating, regardless of who you are, when we're intubating, we're not aware of how long it's taking and whether the patient is descending. And what that tells us is we need, that's, we are calling out for a system fix for that. And the system fix is don't do it all by yourself. You don't have to. We have partners. Let's use our partners. So peri-intubation hypoxia is very, very common. Now it turns out it's also harmful. So if you look at, uh, this data again is drawn from patients with traumatic brain injury. The risk of death, dead, we're trying to avoid that. If you have a traumatic brain injury and your SATs drop below 70, your risk of death goes up by almost fourfold, 3.9 fold. So if I bop you over the head with a two by four and then I let you get hypoxic, you are going to die four times more frequently than if I didn't let you get hypoxic. So it's dangerous. Turns out cardiac arrest, this is an academic emergency department study that said, well, how often, and they're just looking at intubations, and oh my God, 2% of them are having cardiac arrest. That needs to get our attention. That's bad. Well, why were they having cardiac arrest? I'm sure they just spontaneously went into V-fib. It just happened while we were intubating. No, hypoxia. 83% of those cardiac arrests were from hypoxia. Hypoxia kills in patients with traumatic brain injury. Dr. Spate just presented this. This is outstanding uh, information out of Arizona. And he said, of those patients with traumatic brain injury, what is their odds of death with hypoxia? So the reason the numbers are different is a different study. So 3.9, bad. 6.6, .6, really bad. But then throw in hypotension. So if they had hypotension alone, the risk of death is four and a half fold. If they had it both, if we let them become hypoxic and hypotensive, 13.2. So that's bad, and this is something that we can do something about. Now, if you look at intubation, Dr. Sackles did this wonderful paper that really said we're looking at the wrong target. If we're saying we just need to see how good we are getting the tube in the right hole, we need to look at did we do this with a first pass success? and then we actually need to look at something more. But let's just look at first pass success, how many attempts it takes. The more it attempts it takes you to get the tube in the right hole, the more your adverse events go up. So these are the graphs. That blue graph right there is overall adverse events. And you see that your adverse events are around 14% if you get the tube in the right place on the first time. It goes up to 47% if you have to take two attempts. And an attempt is defined, it's actually universally defined as the blade passes the teeth. You don't have to even try to put a tube in. It doesn't matter. Patient doesn't know it. Their physiology doesn't know what you're doing with the tube. Blade passes the teeth. That's an attempt. I don't care if it seems fair or not. It doesn't matter. Patient doesn't care either. So you see that red line right underneath it? That's all, these other lines are the different uh, adverse events. That red line is hypoxia. When you have to intubate a second time, your odds of hypoxia go up dramatically. So first pass intubation is important. Now, it turns out that your risk of peri-intubation hypoxia is highly dependent on what your SAT was immediately before you began the intubation. And this is just a function of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And we all remember that. And it turns out, remember that that is not a linear model, right? So there's some interesting things about that. So let, let's take a look at this. What he said is, I want to see what the rate was of people who desaturated by what their pre-intubation saturation was. 
So in this case, if you had a sat less than 90, 100% of people desatted. And that doesn't mean just get to 90. You had more than a 20% drop. So if you begin your intubation at 90% or at 92% or at 93%, 100% of the time, the patient will desaturate. No matter how many attempts? Yeah, this is just, it doesn't matter. This is, um, now th obviously this is from their data, so you run another study, you may see only 98% of people desatted if you start at 93. Still pretty damn high, right? So the point of this is this is looking at patients who are intubated whether they desaturated based on the saturation they begin with. So if your saturation is 93 or below, your risk of desaturation sometime during that intubation attempt, even if it's first pass success with you know two seconds, I challenge you to intubate someone in two seconds. But even if it is, the odds are that you are going to desaturate. Now, having the saturation above 94 or above is no guarantee that they won't desaturate. So for example, 9% of patients who had a pre-intubation saturation of 99 desaturated. I'll take nine over 100 any day though. Well, <clears throat> something that since we are doing this and we're saying, okay, we don't want them to be hypoxic, we don't want them to become hypoxic, it's probably important for us to say, measure their pulse oximetry, right? Well, it turns out there is a huge technological problem here. This, uh, this was another study that looked at how often during the intubation process the pulse oximetry just took a vacation. Well, now I'm going to step out, grab some coffee. I'll, I'll be, this isn't important. I'll be back when you're done. 79% of the time they had pulse ox dropouts. Pulse ox dropouts are a big deal. Um, now it turns out that this was similar to our data. And I said, this is a problem, guys. Help me fix it. So I went around. I talked to my medics. And it turns out that there are a couple of low-hanging fruit solutions to this. For example, if you have the pulse ox probe on your finger, right below the blood pressure cuff, and the blood pressure cuff goes up, guess what? You lose the pulse down there, kind of by definition, so put it on a different finger. If you have someone who is profoundly cold, I don't know, maybe they did something stupid like me and went running this morning at 24 degrees, um, and they got cold. So we know that we shunt circulation away from our extremities, so you may not be able to get a good reading on the finger. But it also turns out, this was a shocker to me, because I just, I could not believe this data. I had to go back and make sure that my paramedics weren't just lying to me. They told me that if the probe is on the ground and not on the finger, you won't get good readings. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know. So I, this was kind of interesting, because I shared this data with them, and they're like, you know, that makes sense. Having good pulse ox data throughout the intubation attempt is important. Just that. That was the sole intervention. No new technology, no new nothing else. Our rates of saturation dropouts dropped dramatically because we knew it was important. And it's not that my medics are stupid. They're not. They're some of the smartest people I've ever had the uh, privilege of working with. I did the same thing. We just didn't, that's, we were not looking at that ball. We took our eyes right off of it. Now, this is something else. Remember that the saturation you're reading in your finger is not the same as the saturation in your lungs. There's a delay, this pulse ox lag. So we wanted to try to uh, quantify it. And here's, this was kind of a cool study. They looked at that second-by-second -second biometric data. And they said, I want to identify when the patient was ventilated again. So that's easy. Intitled CO2 went up. Patient's intubated. No doubt about it. 
there's no reason, no physiologic reason, that the SATs will continue to drop. You are supplying oxygen. You are ventilating. Oxygen is gas exchange. It's happening. Why is the SAT continuing to drop? 55% of these cases, the lowest oxygen saturation was after they had reestablished ventilations. The answer is it's not dropping. It's just taking a while for the signal that, hey, we're not dropping to get out to the finger. So be aware of that. You have to build in a, a buffer zone. So a saturation of 90, I'm okay with that. The problem is it's not 90. I don't know what it is. I know that at some point in the past, different for different people, it was 90. So we need a buffer zone. Does that make sense? Now, if this curve looks something vaguely like an oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, that's because it's reflecting the same thing. This curve is something they put together, taking all of their intubations, and they said, I want to calculate the rate of desaturation as a function of what the set was when we began. So if your set is up at 99 and you do nothing, you're going to desaturate, but you're going to desaturate at a gradual pace. That pace picks up dramatically the lower your sats are. So if you look down here, the yellow zone is between 90 and 94. You'll notice that these numbers kind of keep sounding familiar over and over again. That rate picks up. And by the time you're at 90, that's a vertical line. So the time it takes you to drop from 98 to 94, you have some time. How much time? Well, I don't know. Kind of depends on the patient. The time you have from 90 down to 80 is much less. The time from 70 to 40 is almost instant. Okay, so it's not almost instant, but it's damn fast. So we really need to be aware of this. The lower the sats are, the faster they're going to desaturate. All right, so we said that it's common. We said it's harmful. The reason we need to uh, not intubate hypoxic patients is because if your sats, 88, 88, it's not going to kill you. Well, you're right. It's not the 88 I'm worried about. It's the 40 that they're going to be at before you can secure the airway and ventilate. That's what I'm worried about. So the reason that this is so important, the reason we need to stop, is because you desaturate very, very, very rapidly once you're already hypoxic. That's why we need to build this buffer zone in. Don't intubate them when they're hypoxic. All right, so <clears throat> the concept of DSI, or the concept that the new protocol we used, and DSI is one part of it, is that uh, we're not going to intubate hypoxic patients. Pretty simple. We're going to find out what the problem is. Well, the problem is they're not breathing. Okay. Um, let's say the problem is because they took uh, opiate overdose. All right. We'll try to give them some Narcan. Give them four Narcan. Did that do the, fix the problem? No. Well, you can sit around and give them more Narcan, or you can just bag them. So I'm, I'm kind of in favor of bagging them. But fix the problem. Whatever the problem is, the problem here is hypoxia. We're going to fix this problem, then we'll intubate them. So you need to fix them, hypoxia or hypotension, before you start intubating. So um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip over this. This is basically a way to fix the hypo, uh, hypotension problem. So we did this for a year. We implemented this and said, you cannot intubate hypoxic patients anymore. You have to fix it first. This is a hard and fast rule. Now, we are, just to be clear, we're not talking about cardiac arrest. So cardiac arrest are excluded from this. These are the patients who are doing some semblance of breathing on their own. We're going to remove that and intubate them. You cannot 
intubate hypoxic patients. And our definition of hypoxia is that the saturation has to be at 94 or above. Why 94 when I don't really, I'm okay with 90? Well, because of those curves. So how do we do that? Um, and this is what uh, Jason Cook came up with. He was teaching how to do these skills and says, well, if you call it sexy, we're gonna remember it much better. So it's a great acronym. So let's go over the different parts. These are the things that you do, and this is actually built into our checklist. Um, it's really important. So it turns out your ability to effectively oxygenate or ventilate a patient with a bag valve mask is not dependent on you putting the bag somewhere on the patient's face. You need to make a good seal, otherwise it doesn't work. Whether they're spontaneously breathing or whether you're ventilating for them. So do a two hands down seal and get a second provider. So the reason we have a second provider holding this bag up, he's not squeezing the bag, he's just holding it. It turns out the bag's kind of heavy and the, we call this the tower of power in here. Um, the tower of power does not support the bag. So if you just let it flop, it will flop off to the side and then your seal twists off to the side and gets all cattywampus. So we use a second provider just to hold onto the bag. Uh, position the patients for the love of God. This is one of the most important things. Stop intubating patients lying flat on their back. Well, they're on a backboard. Okay, I got a solution for that too. <laughs> Get them off the backboard because they don't need it. This is one of the reasons backboards hurt people. So ramp them up. Put a whole bunch of stuff in there. Keep the head of the, uh, their bed elevated and keep their ear to sternal or their ear hole uh, level with their sternal notch and have their face look straight up at the ceiling. Now, because of you, some of y'all might have been in an establishment that poured dark stuff into a, a pint glass. There's another way of thinking about this. This is Kevin Felty. I'm going to have Kevin just stand up. So now he's standing up, and I want him to demonstrate proper ear to sternal notch positioning. Well, I'm going to put a pint of beer in his hand and ask him to drink it. It's a really full pint of beer. So if he just sits there and does this, he's going to spill it all over himself. And that's clear alcohol abuse. We don't want to do that. So what he, he is going to do naturally is do this. That's your external notch positioning. So just think about it as pint sipping position. It's a little challenging to do that from this position, but the concept is the same. You're moving structures out of the way. The other thing that this is doing, as you can see, Kevin is, is not the, the slimmest of folks. When he lays flat, his belly comes back up this way. And that pushes pressure, puts pressure on his diaphragm. And that decreases the uh, reserve capacity in his lungs. There's just not as much room there anymore. There are a whole bunch of, of gravity equations and error equations that I never understood to begin with and certainly don't understand now that tell you you ventilate much better if you get off, offload all of that weight. So head of the bed elevated, ear to sternal notch, and if you have to use a bunch of stuff, use a bunch of stuff. There are some very expensive tools, uh, mattresses and mattresses that inflate, and ORs use those, and they're great for ORs because they're reusable and you're not in a hurry. Okay, that kind of sucks for us. So we use towels, towels and, and bed sheets. Next is use some extra stuff. So what are the components of our extra stuff? Um, so obviously the bag alone, has exactly 21% oxygen in it. We need to hook it up to an oxygen source. Your oxygen source, if you take a look at it, everybody knows, and I just love saying that, everybody knows, um, that oxygen, you can only go up to 15 liters per minute, right? Well, it turns out even if your regulator only goes to 15, you can go past 15. 
So just turn it up to 11. Just keep going. Whatever it goes to, go past that. Um, and the, the term I've seen in the literature now is flush oxygen. I don't care if your regulator goes to 25, go past it. There's, you've seen the Christmas trees in the emergency department uh, with a little ball. This is great because if you ping the ball all the way up, the little green knob still moves. <laughs> so if you keep going, you can actually hear the difference in flow. Um, it'll just start singing at you when you crank it up. So crank it all the way up. Uh, next, use uh, nasal oxygenation. So two oxygen sources. How many of y'all only have one oxygen cylinder on your entire ambulance? Wow, I don't see any hands. So it turns out my respiratory therapist is wrong, who was looking at me, telling me this was stupid. I'm in an ER. We have lots of oxygen cylinders. And I had a paramedic student who was um, way more helpful than, than he was. And the paramedic student uh, is just sitting there saying, well, this is kind of cool. And the RT looks at him and says, you can't do this in the field because you only have one cylinder. Where do you come up with this stuff? That is fake news, my friend. <laughs> So hook up a different cylinder, use a nasal cannula. Now, I'm assuming everyone, or at least most of us, are using waveform capnography, um, the thing you put in your nose. Did y'all know that you can plug that into oxygen? Don't. <laughs> yes, you can plug it into oxygen. I made the assumption that if I can plug it in, that's a nasal cannula. I can crank it. No, it doesn't. The oxygen doesn't go through those little prongs. That's a one-way valve. That's for sucking CO2 out only. There are some perforations. It is literally just diffusing oxygen in the general environment. So what we do is we take the nasal cannula, um, the entitled CO2 cannula off, put a regular nasal cannula on, and then we attach our inline CO2 into our tower of power. Now, as another problem, we notice that patients have a tendency to vomit. Shocker. And they have a tendency to bleed. And that doesn't work real well with inline CO2. So we will foul the bejeebers out of these things. So the device right down below that, my anemic little green light right there, that's called an HME filter or a heat moisture exchange filter. It does some heat and moisture exchange. That's great. I don't care. I use it as a filter to keep the puke out of my entitled CO2 filters because my logistics guys kept saying, Jeff, seriously, you're killing us with the entitled. These things are expensive. Quit doing that with them. All right, so we put that on there. So the nice thing about this is when you transition from ventilating the patient, so you're still getting waveform capnography as you're just using the BVM and allowing them to breathe, you can tell that they have adequate uh, ventilatory um, tidal volume because you see the waveform. And then you take the mask off and attach it to the ET tube, waveform capnography with the first breath, which we all know is the standard for confirming intubation technique. God knows it's not lung sounds. Um, we have uh, OPAs and NPAs down there, and then that suction cath. The suction cath is critically important. When every time we do an intubation, I ask my guys, if you missed it, why did you miss it? If you didn't miss it, what did you learn from that that we can share with other people? Turns out we were missing an awful lot of airways because of suction. So use a good suction cath. That's not one. Um, anything that has a hole in it that you have to put your thumb over, guess what you're going to forget to do? You're going to forget to put your thumb over it. So if for whatever act of God says you can only use a suction cath with a hole on it, then for the love of all that is holy, tape it up. You don't need to let your hand off. So suction um, aggressively. So tape it up. So those are our extras. Um, oxygen, we talked about. Please use lots of it. Um, PEEP. PEEP is your friend. So 
with this process, we have an oxygen regulator that's feeding the BVM. We have an oxygen regulator that's feeding the nasal cannula. Now, what I'm about to say is not actually true, but cognitively, this is the way I teach this. We have a third way to turn up the oxygen, and it's called the PEEP. So if you have maximal oxygenation going in, both with your bag valve and your nasal cannula, and the sets still aren't going up, crank up your PEEP after you made sure that you really do have oxygen going. Would you believe my RT just handed me a BVM? I said, do we have oxygen going? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We didn't have oxygen going. So make sure that the hoses are connected to the things. And then crank your PEEP up. There's no downside to PEEP in this situation, none. Use it. Use lots and lots and lots of it. Um, so what does PEEP do? This is, I love this video. So um, here are some lungs, and we're ventilating the lungs and allowing the lungs to exhale without PEEP. So exhale, no PEEP. You notice how they're completely collapsing. Now we're going to add some PEEP. We're still bagging just the same. They're not co completely collapsing. Why are they not completely collapsing? PEEP. There is some resistance to that exhalation. That's what PEEP does for you. You're recruiting additional lung. You're decreasing the work of inflating your lungs. That's why PEEP works. PEEP is a miracle. Um, definitely use PEEP. Uh, use your airway adjuncts. <clears throat> when you're making a seal, the way we were taught to do a seal does not work. It just doesn't work. I don't care how good you are, it sucks. It doesn't work. It may work in the OR in controlled situations with an anesthesia mask, which is not what we have. So don't make a one-handed seal. When you're making a one-handed seal and you feel the need you're not getting a good seal, what do you do? You push down harder. So what, think about what happens when you push down on the mandible. You're occluding the airway. Our objective is not to do, when you walk up, in CPR, we learn this. How do you open the airway? You do a jaw thrust, not a jaw push. So when you're bagging, let's not do jaw pushes. Lift the mandible up, don't push, and do your, uh, your thumbs down seal. So what you're doing, your fingers reach around the edge of the mandible and are actually lifting it up into the mask rather than pushing the mask down. Uh, usually the hour, we kind of talked about that. Um, there's a guy uh, that I met on Twitter, his name's uh, Jim DeCanto. Um, he teaches this thing called the salad airway. Whole different talk, but oh, it's so much fun. It's how to intubate profoundly soiled airways. Um, he actually even has a catheter out. Um, turns out if your catheter doesn't have a little thumb hole and has a really big um, diameter, you can suck more stuff out. Shocking stuff. So. Our goal in this, one way to prevent peri-intubation hypoxia is to not intubate hypoxic patients. The other thing is, let's try this. What we want to do is say, let's minimize the chances that the patient is going to desaturate. We want to enhance our safe apneic period. Well, how can we do that? Well, you can pre-oxygenate them adequately. So it turns out that the longer you give someone 100% oxygen, up to a point, the bigger their reservoir is, the longer they have of safe apneic conditions. We're going to make them apneic. The rocuronium has this horrible side effect. It's called apnea. They will stop breathing. We want to allow ourselves time to uh, do this. This is a nice graph that shows the longer you provide pre-oxygenation, um, the further out you can go without desetting. It kind of makes sense, right? Well, let's take a look at some apneic oxygenation. How long can somebody go and if you've already seen this slide, you, I suspect this is one of your favorite slides ever. 
how long can people go with just oxygenation? Remember, oxygenation is a passive chemical process. It is just diffusion. It's diffusion of gases. Just like if somebody in the back of the room farts, we're going to smell it up here at some point because it's going to diffuse out. Oxygen does the same thing. And it turns out oxygen diffuses across membranes really, really easily, really well. Well, how long can we go? So this study would never get approved today. This was done in 1950. This is not a new concept. And they said, we have relatively healthy people coming in for surgeries. We're going to go ahead and paralyze them. We're going to intubate them. They're not breathing. I'm going to take an oxygen tubing, and I'm going to shove it down the ET tube, and I'm just going to wait. Ha <laughs> ha, let's watch. I just want to see how long they go before they desaturate. Guess what? They didn't. <laughs> Here are your oxygen saturations. In, in 1950, we didn't have a pulse ox. They're running ABGs off to the lab. One more reason this study would never get approved today. Well, the lowest saturation was 98. Now, how long did that take? 38 minutes, 53 minutes, 45 minutes. Now, this poor guy at 18 minutes, he desaturated quickly. Actually, he didn't desaturate. So why did the anesthesiologist give up and start ventilating? If he's not getting hypoxic, why do we have to ventilate at all? This is the reason I'm not recommending you leave apneic people on just apneic oxygenation. CO2 does not diffuse as well. It's a chemical thing that I barely understood at one point. I really don't understand now. It just doesn't diffuse as well as oxygen. That's their pH. Notice the guy, they bailed out on this intubation at 18 minutes. Their SAT was still 99. Yeah, no worries. Well, their pH was 6.97. pH is under 7, generally considered to be bad. The CO2, these are high numbers. So we can, apneic oxygenation works. We should probably use it. So how do we provide apneic oxygenation? I don't know about y'all. Maybe y'all have figured out a way to, I got involved in a Twitter discussion about this. Somebody saying that apneic oxygenation, we don't need to do it. I said, or he was saying nasal cannula. I'm like, well, Really, I'm, I'm curious, how are you intubating through a face mask? And in 140 characters, it, sarcasm doesn't come across very well. <laughs> that's, so, that's like three days of my life before we just gave up. Um, you can't. The blade has to get into the mouth. So use a nasal cannula. Nasal cannulas can really prolong your desaturation. Uh, Sydney Hems, there's a helicopter group in Sydney that published a paper on this in uh, Annals of Emergency Medicine that really shows you are um, increasing your safe apneic period just with a nasal cannula. It works really well. So this is our oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve attached with uh, goals. If your patient has a saturation of 94 or above, assuming you don't see how long you can go without desaturations, they're at low risk for having a desaturation. If you're anywhere between, say, 90 and 94, you're at high risk. If you're at 90 or below, they are going to desaturate. They're going to desaturate profoundly, and your risk of adverse cardiovascular events is very high. So that's the goal you need to be in. So what does this process look like? Um, so really, DSI, delayed sequence intubation, is just procedural sedation. And the procedure that you're doing is oxygenation. Weingart had that nice little statement in his paper, and it really says what this process is. Um, all patients, I'll be the first to admit, you don't have to do delayed sequence intubation on all patients. If they're cooperating with you and you can adequately oxygenate them, which is they are above 94%, 
breathing normal tidal volume for at least three minutes, their risk of desaturation is pretty low. Now, we do DSI on 100% of our patients. I don't care what their pre-oxygenation saturation is. Why do we do it? It's not because of the science, it's because of the logistics, the implementation science. How do we get from that nice clean piece of paper to what's going on in the field? We don't do that many intubations. So we can't, I want one process doing it one way every single time. So that's the reason we do DSI on everybody. But I, I want you to be clear, I'm not saying that this is the only way to safely oxygenate. This is just one tool to pre-oxygenate patients. I am begging you, stop intubating hypoxic patients. That's a problem. This is a way to do that. So the process is we have nasal cannula, we get our BVM and our PEEP, we give them ketamine. That's, <laughs> they're not going to like the nasal cannula at 25 liters per minute, it's a little irritating, because we don't have the really expensive, high-flow, humidified nasal cannula. Those are sexy, by the way, um, but they're also expensive, so we don't have those. Um, and they're also not really gonna appreciate you lifting their mandible up into a bag. So ketamine is really going to make them not care so much about that. Um, it also has this nice benefit of it is cardioprotective. Um, hell, it actually increases your heart rate, it increases your blood pressure, and it's a bronchodilator. What's not to like? We do this until we get the sats at or above 94 and we start a stopwatch. And there's actually a stopwatch. We force them to use a stopwatch um, and a checklist. They keep it there for three minutes. If the sat drops below 90, fix the problem, reset the clock. Am I being a little overreacting? Maybe so. Um, when you look at that and you truly understand we caused these cardiac arrests, this is a place where I'm willing to overreact a little bit. After you've had the sats up for uh, three minutes, we go ahead and push. Now we're using rocuronium. We push that. We continue with the apneic oxygenation, and we intubate like normal. And that's really it. Does that make sense? All right, so DSI toolbox. This is really what I want to leave you with. Here are the, these are the concepts. Peri-intubation hypoxia, it's common. It's dangerous. If you want to avoid it, stop intubating hypoxic patients. Fix the problem first. Now, does it work? Let me share you with some, uh, some data on our system. Um, and then if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. So hopefully this is gonna get published soon. I have the manuscript done. I meet with my statisticians so they can tell me why I'm an idiot and why doctors shouldn't do stats uh, on Monday. Um, it was very effective. What we're looking at here is a run chart of the rates of moderate hypoxia in blue, which is anywhere between 80 and 90, and severe hypoxia, which is 79 or less. And you'll notice it is all over the friggin' place, right up until that big blue arrow that says, this is where we start DSI. And then you'll notice essentially a flat line, except for that one guy, and there's always the one guy. Um, and he just didn't, he got wrapped up, he let his adrenal cortex talk to him. We have one episode. It's all right, it happens to all of us. Um, so what did the data look like? So our first pass uh, intubation success attempt actually went up. It wasn't significant, but it went up. The pre-attempt oxygen saturation significantly went up. The lowest oxygen saturation, and these are averages. We had, if I remember correctly, 85 patients, 75, uh, I'm sorry, 75 patients in the RSI group, 44 in the DSI group. Average SAT was 82%, low SAT in the RSI group, 98% in the DSI group. Um, basically, it all got better. Um, so it works, uh, and it works really well. 
one of the things is I'm writing the paper, I'm doing additional statistics, and our intubation rate, our non-cardiac arrest intubation rate, so exclude cardiac arrest intubations, and that's about 60% of our intubations. In RSI, I did this calculation, we intubate um, from, for this time frame, 0.18% of all of our transports ended up with an intubation, a non-cardiac arrest intubation. Under the DSI group, that number was 0.35%. It doubled. Why did it double? I, I don't know. So I asked my medics, and I got some fascinating responses. Overwhelmingly, what they said is this process forces us to slow down, to take our time, to disengage our adrenal cortex and re-engage our cerebral cortex. It gives us confidence to know that we're going to have time to do the intubation and do it right and make sure the patient um, does well. Now, my rule here is even if you push the paralytic, if the SAT's dropping, you can't get them up, don't intubate. Drop an eye gel, move on, and then they get intubated in the ER. With the RSIs, some of the medics were saying, well, we're just going to wait until we get to the ER, controlled environment, yada, yada, yada. They'll do a better job. Now the medics are actually saying, I, I love this. I, I'm hoping I'm brave enough to actually put this in the manuscript. They said, um, well, the problem, we actually didn't intubate and went to the ER. And the ER doctor said, well, they're hypoxic. The, tube for the, the solution for that is a tube. And they intubate him when they're hypoxic. And, and, oh boy, this was several meetings for me, by the way, because the doc was pissed that our medic didn't intubate. How dare you give ketamine and non-intubate? So um, I asked the doc, and I said, well, how'd the intubation go? Oh, it was a first-pass success. It went great. Well, how low did the SATs drop? Well, I don't think they dropped at all. How low did the heart rate drop? Well, I don't think it dropped at all. Well, our medics were still there. They watched this. Turns out the heart rate dropped into the 40s. The SATs dropped into the 60s exactly why our medics didn't intubate the patient. So now their perspective is I'm just going to take more time and I'm going to do it right because I know they're not going to do it right in the ER. <laughs> it was awesome. I was talking to one of my partners about this and he said, I don't understand that, that whole DSI thing. Um, I mean, you really don't need to even worry about preoxygenation in difficult airways. So just because you're a physician doesn't mean you're immune to this. This is a problem with humans doing this, is asking for a systems response. And this is our systems response. That's how to get a hold of me. Um, we have a YouTube channel with a lot of videos up. Uh, just search for Williamson County EMS, and that's my Twitter handle. Um, thank you all for coming. Folks, we really hope you enjoyed that lecture by one of the nation's best pre-hospital educators. Now, we have to remind you, this was just a little taste of everything that CCTMC offers. There's nothing like attending CCTMC in person, so let's kick it to our IPP, our immediate past president of AMPA, Dr. Chris Fulagar, to give you all the details for CCTMC 2018. This last CCTMC was, I think, the best one we've ever had, and I'm really excited about 2018. So mark your calendars now. It's going to be April 9th through the 11th, 2018, at the Wyndham San Antonio Riverwalk in San Antonio, Texas. We're also going to be having our pre-conferences the weekend before, so keep those dates open. Look out for the registration link, and I hope to see you there in 2018. Chris, these pre-conferences are amazing too. So if folks have attended CCTMC but not come the weekend before, we definitely encourage you to check that out. 
This last go around with Dr. Jack Davidoff as a medical director, the surgical skills and cadaver lab were just incredible. I've never participated in an anatomy and procedural program like that anywhere in the country. Yes, it is something that we continually get very positive feedback from and something we continue to work on each year to make it better and better. So lots to check out there, folks. Mark your calendars. You do not want to miss CCTMC 2018, San Antonio, Texas. And with that, this is Faison Arshad and Chris Fuligar wishing everyone a safe tour and a happy EMS week.